In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Uh, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. I'm Rob in the Bunker Studio. Uh, with us this evening uh, is Carl behind the knobs doing technical production, doing sort of executive production, we'll say, is our friend and comrade Medina. Uh, Carl Medina, hello. Hey, thanks for having us. <laughs> and I'm uh, really excited uh, to uh, introduce our guest tonight. Uh, Dr. Allison Parker is the department chair of the history of the American History Department and teaches American history at the University of Delaware and she's also the author of Unceasing Militant The Life of Mary Church Terrell and I'm uh, happy to welcome you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I was excited to read the book uh because I am um we were talking before a little bit about just history and we're really into sort of all types of history, uh, but especially American history and especially Reconstruction through the Gilded Age seems to be something that we've been talking about for like two years, um, pretty pretty heavily all the way to like the New Deal. That's been like the pocket of stuff we've been talking about. Um, so when uh, Medina uh, mentioned that she had spoken with you and that she had read the book, I was like, yep, send me the book. <laughs> uh, and so um, thank you for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to um, to start, um, if you could describe sort of the historical circumstances um, of Terrell's parents' birth. Um, they're very unique, and I think it goes a long way to explain a lot of different things, and you, 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 you do um, go in-depth with it, and I think that's it's pretty important um, later on for a, a number of different reasons we'll probably talk about. But can you um, give us that history um, right up into the end of the Civil War and, and sort of where her, her parents and grandparents came from? Yeah, let me just briefly say for people who don't know that Mary Church Terrell was um, a civil rights activist, a suffragist, and someone who was fighting against lynching and all kinds of other uh, discrimination, basically from the period of uh, Reconstruction when she was young, all the way through to 1954, the year of her death. She was actually born enslaved in Memphis, Tennessee. And so that can take us back to talking about her family. Um, both of her parents, Robert Church and her mother, Louisa Ayers Church, were also enslaved. And they were um, the children of their enslavers. So their fathers were white and their mothers were black slaves. And they had to navigate uh, a difficult terrain where they were not free, but they were both recognized to a certain extent by their white fathers. So they had a little bit more access to, uh, the, you know, the tradition of Robert Church worked on his father's steamboat and was able to retain his tips um, so that gave him some training and some tips and also the ability to move on the Mississippi River um, in a way that had gave him some access and some freedom that maybe he wouldn't have experienced. But he was definitely an enslaved person. And Louisa Ayers uh, lived in her 
father and enslaver's home in Memphis and um, was, you know, treated comparatively well under those circumstances, learned um, a little bit of French and uh, was kind of taking lessons along with her half-sister, Laura. So that's the background that Mary Church Terrell was born into. Yeah, I, I was particularly struck in a v- horrific way um, by how that background then sort of immediately led to some of the, the myths that still persist today, really, uh, about what that situation was like. And I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about those and um, how how they manifest themselves. And I, I remember particularly um, Terrell getting letters from people who owned her parents and saying, well, you know, your your mother was a great person. She wasn't a slave because she didn't work in the field. She didn't do agricultural work. And so she's really part of the family. Of course, she wasn't allowed to leave, and we didn't pay her. She got raped, but part of the family. And it just struck me not only that that was a myth, and of course, people have heard that myth before, but the fact that the the actual family of the owners was telling that to the person, like her parents were still alive. How can you tell somebody that? It really, really struck me, and I'd like you to just talk about that um, that transition from really being an enslaved person to then not, and then having to deal with um, this subterfuge uh, about your, your humanity, really. That's right. It, it's a really intense situation where by the time you get to the 1890s and the turn of the century, the um, white South had regained control at the end of Reconstruction and had really pushed back hard on black freedom in ways that um, involved them telling these stories, right, about the myths of the happy enslaved people and the happy black mammy. And so actually Mary Church Terrell's husband, Robert H. Terrell, who was also enslaved until he was about 11, um, he received a letter from uh, his mother's enslaver family. And they said to him, your mother, who they called uh, Mammy, loved us even more than she loved you. Right. I mean, really amazing claims. (laughs) And then uh, mocked his mother saying, oh, Aunt Louisa, she always used to call you Robert. And when she said it, she put on airs because she wouldn't use a nickname for you, right? So the idea that she would call her son by his full name and treat him as an individual and a person rather and than... And she was proud a, of him, right? That was she part was of very too, proud right? of him. Exactly. So it was appalling. And she had to encounter that at various points so that this really was a thorn in her side so that when the Senate in 1923 actually passed, the U.S. Senate passed a bill to create a Black Mammy monument on the National Mall. And she just about lost it. And she wrote a very scathing editorial that got uh, syndicated across the nation saying that this was no tribute to black women and that it was a complete denial of the way that mothers and children were separated and really just tried to say 
this idea of the nostalgia for slavery is completely fabricated and an outrage. So fortunately, the uh, that bill uh, didn't, it died in the House and it didn't pass, but um, it was a pretty shocking moment. And that was a bill that was initiated by the white um, daughters of United Daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah, that was particularly shocking because I know and I wrote that down because that was you use that as a, as a, a real stark example. But that that persists today that people don't. Um, I mean, it was just a logo of a consumer good just a couple of years ago. And and it people it, it doesn't resonate because it's been completely um you know that what that role represented has been completely uh, washed away from our memories. Romanticized, yeah, all those a, things. Yeah. yeah, we have no memory of what that uh, what that actually was. Um, so her father is a has some small real estate holdings, but by stroke of luck, it becomes sort of a, a huge. Um, center of culture in Memphis, and so he becomes sort of a, a large uh, sort of businessman uh, with like entertainment and music and stuff. Uh, and uh, her mother goes to New York, and because of her uh, skill in homes, I guess it's, it's, does this um, women's um, hairstyling, right? Women's it? hair, but yeah. she had a booming business. It sounds like Absolutely. a very very accomplished person. Yeah, both of her parents ended up doing very well by them for themselves. Um, Robert Church, her father, uh, opened up a saloon in 1865. Uh, he actually, they gained their freedom. She was born in 1863, and they gained their freedom in 1864 because Memphis uh, or Tennessee was um, given, uh, the slaves were given freedom and they were uh, emancipated a, a year before just because of the terms of, of how Tennessee came into the Union. But, um, oh, or... You know, it's a complicated story, but I, yeah, I want to get it into has the to do with Civil Tennessee. War. Tennessee uh, got conquered. Uh, exactly. Sherman went exactly. that way. So Tennessee <laughs> you can tell was I'm done. Not a Civil we beat, War historian. We beat, we, beat, we beat Tennessee first. Exactly. Basically. That's yeah. exactly what happened. So, but my point is that uh, he took out a license to uh, have a liquor license, and they denied it entirely on the basis of his race, and um, he ended up suing and winning, and um, got to open his saloon, uh, but that made white police officers who were entirely Irish at the time uh, so incredibly mad that they, when they had a riot and attacked all successful black people in Memphis in 1866, which was called the Memphis Massacre, he was actually shot in the back of the head and almost died. Um, and for the rest of his life, had all kinds of problems related to that. But he didn't die. And in fact, he persevered and uh, bought up all this real estate during the uh, basically yellow fever epidemics when all the white people ran. He stayed and bought up the land that they had abandoned. And uh, in that move, he created Beale Street, the home of the blues. And so her family is a very important family. And then her mother had been trained to do... Um, Basically, fancy 
extreme hairstyles with uh, extra hair and wigs for white women who, you know, at the time in the late 1800s were wearing very high hair. And so, Allison's using her hand a lot. <laughs> yeah, but the yeah. listeners can't I'm, I'm see. I'm trying but, to say that it's yeah, very but, big well, and very high. Well, you can even high. see, uh, if, if you, the, the, the cover art of the, of the book yeah. is a photo of the big hand and the hat. Right. They yeah. love the hat. Right. The Gilded exactly. Aged hat was a big, it was a thing. Exactly, exactly. So, um, Terrell grew up moderately privileged in a way where, for example, she was able to go to Europe. Um, she was able to study at Oberlin. Now, of course, um, she faced, you know, as much discrimination as anybody because that was just rampant. Um, but I would like just to explain a little bit about her, her younger life and her move into advocacy and activism uh, and, and what, what, what was the real impetus to get her to some of the issues that um, she became really a champion of uh, at the turn of the century? Yeah, I think there were several factors. One is that she grew up with um, her mother's mother, and her mother's mother told her stories about enslavement that were very upsetting to her. Uh, lots of stories about the rape and attack of uh, black women by white men on the plantations. And so she was aware of what had happened even to women in her own family, even though her own mother and father tried to downplay it and um, offer her a kind of comfort and reassurance, um, her grandma did not do that. And so she did have that. Um, but somehow when she went, she was sent away to school because there were no schools that were adequate for her in Memphis, Tennessee, right after this, uh, you know, in the basically the early Reconstruction period, um, they were building schools for African-Americans, but she was uh, in a one-room school, and she was really, really bright. And they had the money to be able to send her somewhere to really capitalize on her intelligence and let her shine, which she never would have been able to do if she had stayed in Memphis. So she, they sent her away quite young to go to a model school um, at Antioch College where the it's almost like a teacher training. So the college students were helping to teach her. But her mother paid for extra German classes so that she started learning languages. And in the end, she was uh, fluent and able to teach um, German and Greek and Latin. And then she went abroad and learned French and Italian. And uh, so she and then she knew English. So she was at least fluent in six languages. So um, the chance to go to Oberlin was a, a really big deal for her. And they had a tradition of accepting women and African-Americans prior to the Civil War as part of a kind of abolitionist uh, equity model that, you know, was quite revolutionary for its time in the 1830s. So uh, she went to that institution and thrived there. In spite of moments of racism and issues that did come up, it was at the time in the 1870s and 80s a relatively good place for a young black woman like her to get an education. Yeah, it's interesting, the the forces of reaction, the way I always think, because later in her life when um, she has children and her daughters go, the the climate there has changed dramatically. And it becomes part of her activism, actually, uh, that, you know, the 
reactionary forces have pulled it back to the point where um, they're not, they're not, her daughters aren't even afforded the opportunities and the, uh, the, the placement that she was 30 years prior, or, well, 20 years prior. She had children a little bit later. But, um, but yeah, I found that, that little, that, that detail um, it kind of fascinating too because it just, paints this picture that it's a you know it's a push and pull it's, it's it doesn't always go in the same direction oh no exactly and in fact uh she took her daughters there in um you know this period in 1913 1911 this time frame when woodrow wilson is has come into power and he is pushing segregation in the uh federal government in the nation's capital he's really not um, a supporter of black rights at all. And she finds that the fact that this is something that's being authorized from the top is really creating a problem and making a place like Oberlin into a reactionary site. And so they start saying, well, we have student, white students from the South and we don't want to offend and upset them. They're not used to having to be in on equal terms, you know, social equality with blacks. So we're going to uh, kind of create a system of segregation within Oberlin so they wouldn't let the black students participate in the honors clubs and all the things that she had actually done um, those decades earlier. And so she was outraged and fought hard and also contacted the NAACP and tried to put pressure on um, Oberlin to change its ways. Uh, because it was really, a, I think, somewhat dem- devastating for her to find that her beloved alma mater had uh, done her uh, children wrong. You, you mentioned Wilson, so I want to I want to talk about sort of where she's situated in politics because I just think it'll be a fun yes. sort of exercise because yes. this is this is what yes. Medina is saying. So here, the funny here's here's the, the the funny story, and this is like the first thing. Medina said to me, she was like, we decided, so I decided, yes, I want to read this book. Let's try to make a, make a podcast out of it, make a show out of it. And he said, well, you know, she was a Republican her whole life. (laughs) And I said, well, Medina, I get that. Like, you know, if the, if the radical Republicans, um, you know, basically fought a war to free you, you would, you would feel like, yeah, I'm I'm with them. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, especially even through reconstruction, through the Gilded Age, um, you know, progressivism, you know, at the yeah. turn of the century was more like, you know, just making the bureaucracy. And so it wasn't, you know, just graft. Um, so all of that sort of made sense to me. Right, right. Um, but because her career spanned so long, yeah, we have these, these, these um, sort of tension points. And... Well, before we even get to the New Deal and the Roosevelt tension well, point. I feel like we should tell Dr. Parker how big a fan of FDR you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just so this all makes sense. Oh, so you want you want to do that. You want to do that. That's fine. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of FDR. I would say that if we're going to say that presidents, because all presidents are bad, in my opinion. <laughs> They're all bad. Like, there's no good, there's no president I'd be like, that's an admirable person. <laughs> They're all bad, so let's just start with that. <laughs> There's a few of them who have accomplished things that are in- historic. Mm-hmm. Lincoln, it's obvious, right? Right. Um, but I mean, you could say, ah, oh, the guy suspended habeas corpus, and he did that. Yeah, I, 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 he's bad, but <laughs> he did a historically great thing. 
And I think FDR is the same. I, I think um, he was able to do historically in, incredible things in a context that other people, other, nobody else could do it. And so I don't know if I would be, would say that I'm like a fan, like a sports yeah, fan. Yeah. I, yeah. I recognize the history of, of the, of the there's stuff. There's no jersey up here, he by did. the way. There's no FDR jersey. I'm looking no, around. There's no FDR there jersey are. up here. You'll but, notice. But you have done, any... you know, quite a few episodes on FDR. Yeah, and, and, like and Harvey J.K. Is, right, is, so. is, a, is a friend of mine, and, and he was a, a, an FDR scholar. Right. Uh, but a scholar really of the New Deal. I mean, he said he wrote the Four Freedoms to... to he told, maybe he told me this on the side to explore the dialectic between the greatest generation and the economy. So we got we got actually deep into the Gramsci yes. on it. But um, but yeah, I, I think um, it'll be fun, right? Like I think the reason I brought it to you is because I think it's fun to explore criticism yeah. of FDR, right? And like from a totally different perspective. Um, so I'm not sure what you have on your notes because I can't see. I'm like I'm going off script, but no, um, I, believe me, some of this is on the script. <laughs> Look at that. I think it would be really interesting to explore kind of as she gets out of Reconstruction, as she gets older and she sticks with the Republican Party, why that is. Right. And like her she was a pacifist, but, you know, and she, and she was critical of FDR, but she also was critical of the New Deal. Like She wasn't just a conservative that was, uh, you know, abolitionist. She also was conservative fiscally, it seemed a little bit. Right. So, yeah, I mean, she definitely and that's that's the you, you hit the, the nail on part. the head. <laughs> You you hit the nail on the head. Um, on one hand, um, she was advocating for, and and I'm going to make statements here that a lot of them are probably not accurate. And you're going to have to correct me. Okay. Um, <laughs> one of her big issues, and it makes perfect sense, was uh, anti-lynching legislation. Yeah. And the anti-lynching legislation wasn't going anywhere, and lynchings kept happening. It's very bad. Um, and so obviously Herbert Hoover is not going to do anything. And so it picked up with FDR, and, and he didn't do anything either. And that's not good. And, and she resented that, and I think she has every right to resent that. I probably, had I been uh, around, I hopefully had the same, whatever. The way I look at it, I understand why, that's, why, why she felt that way. Um, however, I'll juxtapose that against another uh, sort of um, equality issue. And you touch on this in your book. Mm-hmm. There's a famous story. A lot of it's apocryphal. I get that. But um, she was working with a group on the March on Washington with A. Philip Randolph, the labor leader, the Pullman Porter labor leader. Um, they, get, they, get a, they get a meeting, this group of activists get a meeting with Eleanor and um, Robert Wagner, the secretary of labor. Doesn't go anywhere. They're at an impasse. They're going to bring this, the um, March on Washington to Washington. They're at an impasse. FDR has them to the... White House. He said, look, here's what I can do. I can call the heads of these companies because what they wanted was the war industry to be desegregated. Uh, blacks weren't getting proper jobs. If they got jobs at all, they got jobs sweeping up. It's totally bullshit. FDR says, I'm going to call. I'll call these companies. We'll try to straighten it out. They're like, that's bullshit. We're not taking that. We're going to have the march. He's like, you can't have the march. He's like, we can't cancel the march. So Randolph says there's going to be, he thought there was going to be 10,000 people. Come. Randolph says, no, we're going to bring 100,000 people. And FDR doesn't believe it. So he asked somebody else, what did he just say? He said 100,000 people. He was like, I don't know about this. This seems bad. But two weeks or three weeks later, he signs an executive order. He desegregates the shop floors. Now, 
you could say like, I, I don't know how you. That's the story I I tell. You 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 tell it too, but you tell it a little bit differently. And I I don't know whether I'm um, glorifying <laughs> glorifying because I don't think I don't think Roosevelt's painted in glory in this, but I think that. Given the context, allowing these activists access to Eleanor, who was a, who was a, a, a significant advisor and a department, and they, I mean they called it the NLRB, the Wagner Act. So this guy's a top top person that went nowhere, and then they came to the White House. They applied pressure, and it worked. And so I look at that as a win yeah. for everybody. I, I guess I would say, yeah, uh, if we look back at it and we look at the longer trajectory, he was in office for a long time, yes. and so that's at toward the end and after he's also gained more black votes. And so partly what's happening is that um, this these earlier issues where she is not at all happy is on the anti-lynching issue and um, all kinds of people, um, including some of her closest friends and uh, even uh, the representative uh, Oscar DePriest, who with whom she was having an affair after uh, her husband died, um, although he was married. Great um, story, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Medina and I did talk We're about like, that. This is juicy. Spicy, spicy. Yeah. So he was the first uh, black man in the uh, House of Representatives in the 20th century and the first from the North. Um, so it was like the first since Reconstruction, really. And, from um, Chicago? Yes, he was right, from Chicago. Gotcha. So basically what happened is that from her perspective, uh, the fact that he had uh, the... The House, the Senate, the White House, he had all the levers of power in her mind and by a big majority. And the fact that when DePriest went and met with him and said, you know, I put this forward in the House, can you get it through the Senate, this anti-litching legislation? And he basically said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to waste my uh, political capital and I don't want to upset white people in the South and I'm not going to risk my uh, election, you know, next election on it. And I think she just could not respect him and could not accept his political calculations. And so she was very upset about that. She also was concerned about deficit spending. And even Roosevelt worried about deficit spending. So she had that side of the Republican uh, fiscal conservatism, if you want to put it that way. But it was balanced by the fact that all through the 30s and even earlier, um, but then persistently through to the 50s, she worked uh, very closely with people in the Communist Party in different organizations that were trying to advocate for people like the Scottsboro Nine, um, trying to really fight against injustice in the criminal justice system, and then also um, really fighting on behalf of people who are working, working people who either were trying to unionize or uh, she really supported these cafeteria workers in the 40s when in the late 40s when they were um, basically resisting having to sign those kind of Hyde Amendment um, confessions that you promise not to be a communist to keep yeah. your job. And uh, she supported them. And so she was never... A Democrat until I guess I think the last election maybe she supported Stevenson, <laughs> but um, but what but what she was is somebody who was always willing to work on issues, and then also she absolutely came to adore Eleanor Roosevelt. So she made a distinction 
uh, between the two of them. And as she watched Eleanor Roosevelt grow and learn and really take on the issues of uh, basically race and class and inequalities in America, she um, was happy to every time she heard her speak, every time she met her. Um, and then, of course, she was a little jealous when Mary McLeod Bethune uh, got the job, you know, working at the National Youth Administration and, you know, all those kinds of things, because she in some ways would have been like to have been the person to uh, have Eleanor Roosevelt's ear. But because she wasn't willing to switch to the uh, Democratic Party, which is what Bethune did, uh, she was not able to make that move. So she was somebody who uh, was never willing to make that switch. But, yeah, she yeah. really believed in the party of Lincoln, and she could not stand the fact that the Southern Democrats were still Southern Democrats. Yeah. And they were still, uh, you know, still talking about white supremacy, still using the N-word on the Senate floor, still supporting all kinds of horrible things. And so even during the New Deal era, they were not— okay no. <laughs> so, so well, she was just like no i'm I sorry gonna, i was going to ask this as yeah. a question maybe I'll, I'll sort of state it as a an idea that i have and then you can sort of poke holes in her and tell me what you think because you mentioned her affinity for eleanor roosevelt yeah. and i was very interested in some of the labor activism she did in the late 40s and it seemed to all come the first sort of time that she was getting mixed up with like oh communists are in the room and i'm talking i'm giving one of my given remarks or she was at pickets, specifically labor pickets, 46, 47, as you said, like late, late 40s. But throughout her life, there were huge, um, there were huge labor actions all over the United States. And it doesn't seem like they, well, maybe, obviously, not everything's in the book, too. But I, as I was reading that, I wrote some of them down. And they were right around the turn of the century. The Homestead War in Pennsylvania of the, the steel workers was 1892. Um, Triangle Shirtwaist, 1911. Um, Pullman Porters, because she worked with A. Philip Randolph, that was in 1897. So there was all Latimer uh, uh, Mines, 97. She doesn't seem to, or, or, or maybe she did, and I don't know it, really have a connection with those that type of activism until after World War II. I would actually say World War One because okay. what happened in World War One is that uh, she and her she had two daughters and the daughters were um, in their twenties at that point um, and they were all she and her daughters were trying to get wartime jobs and uh, they encountered discrimination repeatedly. Sometimes they wouldn't be given jobs or they would get it um, by paper and on the phone. And then when they would get there and people would see that they were black, they were like, oh, sorry, we're just, you know. And she was very light skinned because of the situation with her parents uh, being uh, half black and half white. Um, so she was not easily discernible. Sometimes she looked black to people. Sometimes she didn't. So she could pass if she wanted to, for example, which she did try to do when she was taking uh, segregated trains through the South. She tried to pass as white to get to the next speaking tour uh, in a sleeper car. So, uh, but it was a very strategic kind of passing. Um, however, she uh, found herself being fired from jobs or denied jobs during the 
First World War, as were her daughters. And in some cases, the white women who were working with her would say, we're going to go out on strike and protest if you get, you know, if you get to keep this job or if we have to work with you. And they tried to create a segregated bathroom for her at one place. And then she had to quit because she was so insulted. And she created a wage earners association with the idea that black women needed to fight to unionize. And she did that in World War One. And so um, then that became an organization that the uh, other women in the National Association of Colored Women built up for several years after that. It never entirely took off, but um, so it did. I wouldn't say it was a massive success, but her impulse was to unionize and organize. Organize So she was doing that in 1919. And then um, the the, the work with the Communist Party and the international labor defense that all started in the 30s uh, when those popular front organizations were taking up black uh, his not black history black rights as a as kind of a way to get at working class uh, popular support they would be doing rent strikes or trying to take on the causes of people who were being uh, you know basically threatened with the death penalty for crimes that they didn't commit especially something like um, a you know a purported and falsely purported gang rape of of white women which in the context of the time the NAACP refused to take the case because they were doing a different kind of strategic um careful planning of dismantling segregation by focusing on things like schools accommodation yeah they did not want to go anywhere near uh, issues of rape and black men. Like they're like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. So the communists stepped in, and Terrell and a lot of other black women walked right in with them, and sh- you know shook hands with them. So you have in her records from the 30s um, these really great letters from the <laughs> the Legal Defense Fund with um, hammers and sickles and like chains being broken. So she wasn't in confused about who she was working with because this is their letterhead <laughs> that they're sending to her. Yeah, I mean, she was you know? very clear. I mean, it, the House on American Activities would contact her and say this person was in the thing. And so she was embroiled in that, but she was she did stand up for that. Yeah. Um, very, very stridently, which was which was cool. I did pull this out. And this is another thing you and I uh, discussed last night, because there's there's other um, sort of geopolitical things going on in the world that. People have opinions on, and 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 things need to be sort of understood in historical context. But this is an interesting paragraph, and I wanted to read it. Um, as World War II began to unfold in Europe, Terrell publicly cautioned that the brutal history of European colonization could undermine African Americans' enthusiasm for possible U.S. intervention in the hostilities. In quote the race problem in the war, a speech she gave repeatedly, she decried Hitler's racism and anti-Semitism, but pointedly warned that it could be hard to convince African Americans and other people of color to sympathize with England and France, given their record of colonization in India and Africa. Quote, England has been both unjust and cruel to her African subjects. Her hands are stained with blood. She and France have held in their vice-like grip the most beautiful, fertile, and valuable sections of Africa, sections full of diamonds and gold. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're kind of having that. We're g- yeah, I mean, you have to kind of, these things are complicated, I guess. Um, I, that's what I, I'm always saying, like, look, it's complicated. <laughs> um, but I found that a very, um, a, a, a very, um, salient 
thing to think about like today you can think about it well yeah because she was really talking about empire and colonization and saying you know we and you in the west have to do better and really support uh african independence uh she was very much in favor of that she did not want uh these countries like or Haiti or other things to be under some kind of territorial status. You know, she wanted uh, independence and was definitely very critical. And she also, early on, um, starting in the 1920s, was writing about Gandhi. And that gets back to the peace mission. So she was in favor of peace and a pacifist for years. And then when she heard about Gandhi, she was really interested in his philosophy. But ironically enough, some white women said, well, I don't think that you're really a true pacifist and we're not sure we want you you know, to be uh, affiliated with us because you always praise African-Americans' contributions to war efforts. And she said, well, that's different because what I'm trying to talk about there is talking about citizenship and citizenship rights. And since in America, the way that we have conventionally understood how you gain citizenship rights and you prove your patriotism is by fighting for your country. And I'm just pointing out that since the beginning with the American Revolution, African-American men have been fighting. <laughs> right. And so she, so some people said, well, we, we're not really you know, we don't like that, that you can say both of those things. And she said, I'm not glorifying the fighting. I'm just asking you to recognize them as citizens. So that's something that a lot of black people had done is to try to leverage the participation in wartime as a way to say we need our full rights. So that, of course, is also what's happening with Roosevelt yeah, I was and gonna, his change. I, I, I mean, that's I the think other thing, too. That's you a big you part see that you see a lot of the war effort. Um, change or at least give Roosevelt the room to start doing more of that uh, in the face of Southern Democratic recalcitrance, say, right. because that's why he was able to do the executive order. Um, that's why if you if you look at the Four Freedoms as written, which is, again, very late in, in Roosevelt's life right at the end of the war, uh, it was all about, look, we have all of these people mobilized and we're fighting for a thing. We have to make that real for everybody when you come back. So that was something that was being talked about in the early, four, you know, in the, you know, 43, 44, I guess. Um, so, yeah, there was a, you know, there's a, there was a, definitely a transformation with that as well, for sure. Right. And so it's black veterans after the war who are really pushing for freedom and doing some of the early civil rights activism, which she is involved in as well. But so it is important that black men are fighting and black women are going as nurses and other volunteers. And there are, in fact, um, you know, different ways that black women are participating, including, of course, on the home front in um, different kinds of factories and doing wartime jobs. So all of those shifts are really crucial. And she's very uh, involved in all of that. One last quote uh, regarding um, sort of this seeing the support of communism and, and trying to address it in some way. Um, Carol was uncertain what to do after the Washington Star denounced the conference she was attending as being communist-sponsored. She told the assistant chief of the passport division, quote, people here pretend they fear communism to keep folks from talking about the shameful manner the U.S. is violating the Constitution. That's exactly right. And, you know, she was not ever 
denounced as an actual communist, which she wasn't. So that was correct. But they did have the FBI uh, following her. She did have a file and they did see her as a communist sympathizer. And they used the fact that she had uh well, she was friends with Paul Robeson. And, you know, in fact, the title of my book is Unceasing Militant. And that's actually a quote from Paul Robeson when he was giving a eulogy for her after she died. And he called her an unceasing militant. And um, it's those kinds of connections that got her to the attention of the authorities, right? And so um, there was a moment in the uh, late 40s where she was kind of getting a lot of pushback from everyone about because this is when the Red Scare is really ratcheting up and so she's getting pushback from people saying you got to be careful you know you better watch out yeah her <laughs> her nephew was like you know you, you don't want to be um, painted as a red and she uh, eventually decided that she just wasn't going to be afraid and that she had been supporting these causes uh for a long time anyhow, and that it was more important to her to follow through on what was really important to her. And that's why in the end, she goes to the United Nations and speaks on the floor on behalf of black women who are subjected to violence by white men. And her specific person who she's really speaking for is um, a woman named Rosalie Ingram, who was sentenced to death along with her two sons because they had uh, come to her assistance and they had fought back a white male uh, assailant who was trying to rape her. And so it was in that context that um, she led a campaign to free Rosalie Ingram. And it was led by the Civil Rights Congress, which was another one of these communist organizations. And so she was taking on these really important things um, in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, trying to shift the tone. But it's also really talking about the issues we're talking about today. You know, the violence against black women, the uh, really not paying attention to the to the rights and their right to bodily autonomy and to safety. And those are the things that she said. That, those are human rights violations that need to be taken up at the United Nations. Right. And that's what the Communist Party was also actually doing. Um, and she participated in it in this. Um, I think the report was something called something like we call genocide. Right. Talking about lynching in America as a kind of genocide that the U.N. had to pay attention to. Two more questions. The first one I'm going to ask you. I was going to say, can Does... I ask a question? <laughs> yeah, no, you go first. Then. You, you, well, you, you ask a question first. OK, well, I was going to ask if we could talk a little bit about her methods. So we, we haven't, for Great the question. for the listeners, talked about kind of, so she lived a long life. She was how old when she passed? 90? Um, 90. 90? Yeah. So she had quite a long life to try different methods, but um, what interested me kind of in her life story was that she participated in nonviolent um, like protests and even I think in her 70s and 80s, right? And she was like, yeah, on the, exactly. Putting her body end. on the line. Yeah. Um, but she also was um, on the speakers like uh, track and she was going around the country. Can you talk a little bit about like the different methods of protest? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, because so she never picked just one me uh, method and one organization to work with. She was always a member of multiple organizations at the same time, whether it was the NAACP, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. 
a whole variety of groups. So she was going to many different places, um, always getting ideas for what what to work on next and how to get the message out that she was interested in, which was always women's rights and civil rights and you right. know black rights in general, the black freedom struggle. But she was willing to do it through meeting with presidents, going to lobby Congress, asking for laws to be passed. She uh, was among the women who fought for suffrage by standing outside and picketing the White House. And she was uh, one of the only documented black women with she and her daughter went. And we know that they were there multiple times. Um, And then also uh, she was willing to use her voice and her pen. So she was a circuit. Uh, she she traveled on the speaking circuit. And that was the version of podcasts, right? That was <laughs> yeah, the radio. I, I really wanted TV. to bring that right. up because, yeah. yeah, you know, through, you know, uh, Reconstruction, that was the entertainment. You know, yeah, if you right. could uh, right. if you could give a good speech, it was great. I mean, there was all different kinds. Robert Ingersoll did like secular, you know, there's no God. People love the throat stuff. He get run out of town. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was the big thing. And, and if you were very good at it, um, you could you could really make a case for something and create a political movement. That's right. Or support a political. That's movement. right. She traveled all over the country giving talks and people remembered those talks. And, you know, you still would have people like Dorothy Height t- talking about how it meant such a big deal to her to have um, met and heard her. And Polly Murray said the same thing. These young Who's black my women. my cousin, by the oh, way. This is my Are question. That was yeah. my question. Oh, my I was gosh. Gonna... I had no oh, idea. You stayed on my... So, so yeah. I'm sorry. So let me... Let wow. me t- <laughs> if, if you heard me lead it up, I said, I'm use, I'm use, have your copy of the book. And that was going to yes. be my question because this is the quote. Terrell's coordinating committee for the enforcement of the D.C. anti-discrimination laws derived from wartime protests that began without her direct involvement. In 1943, an African-American student who was to become a civil rights leader in her own right Polly Murray was then uh, one of two women enrolled at Howard University Law School, and I see Polly Murray underlined, and I look in the thing, and it says "cousin" with an exclamation mark. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah, that's so distant cousin. Um, So my mother's mother's side. um, So my grandmother's grandfather was a cousin of Polly Murray. So she she wrote like a memoir and like a history of her family. Yeah. So when we went down as a family to the African American Museum down in DC, my Fantastic. grandmother went with us and she pointed and she was like, That's your cousin and she explained the story. And so kind of the the dynamic that you mentioned earlier with um Molly's family being kind of biracial and the issues there. So on my um maternal grandmother's side, um her great grandmother was white which is the flip side. And a lot of times, you know, when we think about um, white whiteness as being part of American blackness, it's almost always white man raping a black woman. Exactly. In our family's instance, it was um, an illegitimate child being raised along slaves. And so she was, her class, because of that, um, was she wasn't able to marry a white person. So she married... Um, who was, I guess, my great-great-grandfather at this point, um, and resented that and resented black people. So <laughs> she was horrible. Oh, that's <laughs> um, terrible. But so because she didn't like, th- so it's the Fitzgerald's family, that's that's how we're related to Polly. Because she didn't like them, she refused to give Polly any information <laughs> when she came around doing her book. 
Um, but yeah, it's just a funny connection. Yeah, it was a neat connection, and I like I I do appreciate because I mean we pass around books. <laughs> We're always passing around books, giving out books. I looked for the Four Freedoms because I wanted to brush up on all of that history, and then I remembered I gave it to Becca Cotto. <laughs> I don't even have it because you give them all, yeah. give all these books. We're all giving so books funny. around. But yeah, I, so I do enjoy like looking. I'm like, ah. well, one of the other things I I underlined in there and that I wanted to bring up is the Delaware connection. Yeah, unfortunately, why don't you? Well, why don't you I don't know if you want to tell the story or you want well, to tell. I'll, it, I'll, I'll lead into it. I think you could tell the story much better, Doctor yeah. Parker. Um, but you mentioned that. Um, on, I guess she's on the speaker's, what is it, the speaker's circuit, yeah. right? And she's has an, an issue of racism, one of the f- one of the few, right, where she was really discriminated against in a way. Well, it was one of the more dramatic incidents. Yeah. So she was, it was 1920, and women had just won the right to vote. And uh, she was appointed by the Republican Party, the Republican National Committee, to be one of their speakers to get black women's votes, right? Because... Uh, both parties hired women to start campaigning for the president, the presidential candidates of their two uh, parties, because they did see that these were this is a huge untapped. Right. uh, You know, I mean, some some women already had the right, right to vote, but nationally, this was a big change and it was exciting. And so she was given the Eastern Division, so called to rally votes for black women. And so she was traveling on the train up and down all throughout the really the Northeast more. So she wasn't really worrying about the segregation that she usually experienced in the the Deep South, uh, which is where, you know, she often went to speak and she was familiar with that. But here she is traveling to give a talk for the Republican Party in Delaware. She gets off at Dover and she's supposed to be meeting a black Republican who a man who's going to help her get to the talk where she's going to give a talk and she can't find his name in the telephone book. So she goes and asks the white ticket agent if um, he could help her find this person's number. But I guess she said, I'm going to be speaking at this Republican rally. And this infuriated this white man so much that this black woman was impertinent enough to be voting, campaigning, involved in politics as a Republican, no less, right, right, that he had, he threatened to have her arrested for disorderly conduct and called the police. And so she was stuck on the platform for hours before she was able to go. She managed to get to her speech. And then when the ticket, the uh, detectives for the train came, they were going to arrest her, but they heard her speak and they realized, wow, <laughs> this, this is one heck of a woman. And so they chose not to press charges. And there was this interesting dynamic that happened afterwards because she was protesting. She wanted to press charges herself against them for discrimination. And uh, the black men who were advising her um Often they were ministers. Sometimes they were in the NAACP, you know, her her, fr- her close friends and associates. And they all said, oh, goodness, you know, we don't want you to be talking about having almost been arrested for disorderly conduct because, you know, you're a woman and that would be an, a humiliation. And, you know, we can't have that. And she said, I wish I had been arrested and put in jail <laughs> so that I could say, you know, look, I am a victim of the kind of segregation and racism that's that is affecting 
women who just gained the right to vote. And she said, in the North, I'm the first one that I know of. You know, so she um, was outraged by that situation. But yeah, that was a Dover, Delaware story. Yeah, I was like, yikes. That's the only mention we get. Yikes. This this state, one of the things that's odd, and we chatted about this before we turned the microphones on, too. One of the things that's odd about Delaware, amongst the, the litany, um, you know, there, there's going to have to be a reckoning uh, because, you know, look, everybody here got to keep their slaves because we were a border state. And we didn't secede. So let's not let's not pat ourselves on the back. We took the we took the Rodney uh, Square. We took the Caesar Rodney statue down and people like lost their minds. Uh, but we have a famous plantation called the Dickinson Plantation, and we named a high school after that guy. And they just discovered, like, the remains of enslaved people there recently, I think, the yeah, past year. Yeah, there's actually That's a very right. good, there's there's a, uh, in, in, in 2016, I think her name was Molly Murray, worked for the News Journal. She did a, she, uh, there were some documents that got uncovered, and she covered it in the News Journal mm. of, um, you know, one of the planters, it didn't say, I assume tobacco in this area, but I could be wrong, but had several hundred slaves. And there's, there is a photo. There's the, it's the only known photo of a Delaware slave. There's one. You know, I don't know if this is one of your questions, but, um, well, we have to talk about, I want to go back to Molly, but before we do that, while we're on this topic, Dr. Parker is also one of the co-chairs yeah. of the, of the UD anti-racism initiative. That's correct. Um, and I know that the initiative has done some work on like Delaware's history, UD specifically right. history on That's right. slavery. What what we did is we um, convinced the uh, administration of the University of Delaware to join the University Studying Slavery Consortium, which is run out of, of the University of Virginia. Um, many, many universities and colleges across the country have joined. And the idea is that it... Um, is part of a group, and we are now um, actually looking at our own history to understand what the history of enslavement and dispossession has been on the land that UD is now on. So we were able to have, um, we created some new classes that focus on racial inequality in Delaware and on uh, black oral histories in Delaware. And then we've been... um, having students do research into the land records of the university. And we've been able to determine uh, some of the people who either sold or gave their land were both enslavers. And then almost as remarkable, it turns out that in the period after uh, after the Civil War, when we're talking the 1870s, and I think even into the 1880s, we found records of long-term indentured servancies for black women that were still in place in the 1870s and 80s, which is just stunning. And those were, um, one of these women uh, was working as an indentured servant um, for the Lewis family. And currently there's a plaque on the Barnes and Noble building that identifies the uh, Lewis family as the family that that land was either sold or transferred from. Um, but uh, we have a goal of trying to change some of those markers. And we're also uh, in the early stages of creating a new story map um, digital tour of campus and the neighborhood that will also talk about 
uh, black history starting with these early moments and then moving through uh, the period of segregation to desegregation to life on campus after. Yeah, I'll even go a step further on this campus stuff because I would like people to look at the the property and the real estate that the university owns in Newark and elsewhere and also find out how much tax they pay on it. Because all of this stuff lasts forever and ever and it seems to always have the sort of the same basis. Um, the basis of slavery was so people could make money and it never stopped. You know, this is the reason why... Um, I guess Robert Terrell was his name, and his mm -hmm. father was a riverboat captain. But what didn't own, didn't own his mother. What you could do, which I and, and I guess I did know this, but when you read it, it's like if you owned black women, you could also pimp them out and have your friends rape them as well. And so that was the situation. That was the and and you notice that happened in eighteen. 40, 1840s-ish, something like that. And all throughout her life, into the 20th century, she's fighting the stigma of, well, black women are promiscuous. Black women are, this is why she couldn't uh, fight her ticket in Dover. Right, um, right. The, the reason she couldn't fight her ticket in Dover started with treating people as property to make money, you know, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years before that. And it still resonates today. And so... I, I would like to see some, uh, you know, certainly the markers and the his history needs to be clarified. Yes. And, and the, the university needs to start uh, paying their share um, because it's all stolen for all of the reasons that we talked about tonight. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really is, – is this um, – just at the university, this program is it students and you're coordinating it? How does yes. it, how's it working? How can people like? Can, how, I want to try to like. I'm sure Carl will link to it in the show notes, but yeah. yeah, I want people to look at especially the tools that you're talking about and some of that history that people can look at. Right. So the university's um, UD anti-racism initiative has a website um, on the campus website uh, web page, I guess you would say, and we do have a lot of resources listed. We have some of our past programming that's uh, videos that you can watch. Um, we're building out uh, sites that will help us have the oral histories and some of the papers that students have given uh, that or presented already on um, the land and the former enslavers and you know all of the history that we found so far. Um, so it's a work in progress and it's a grassroots movement that's primarily uh, composed of faculty, staff, graduate students. And so far, the undergraduates have been involved as um, people who are in the classes, who are participating in the research projects, and then also in the summer research internships that they're doing. And they, of course, are in all of the audiences. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're working on getting an Instagram page that they are going to run and um, I think once we do that, we'll also be able to reach more of the undergrads uh, in ways that our traditional public. email listserv doesn't <laughs> seem to quite hit them. Yeah. What, what can I say? Carl and I can start a uh, alumni. We can start an alumni chapter. We're both. Yeah, we're both exactly. There. That's I'm fantastic. My, I, me too. I, I, too. That's right. <laughs> She's yeah, got the, multiple the, hats. The, 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 the alumni <laughs> chapter. Me well before. I think. What what year were you born? <laughs> Ninety three. 
Okay, because I, I graduated <laughs> with a political science administration degree in, 19, in May, the third weekend in May in 1996. <laughs> so I was... Uh... Running around causing terror for my mom. I was running around causing terror, too, but for, again, other people. Um, I have another question. Yeah, ask ask your question. So when we talked about, you were mentioning how relevant all this is today. One of the things that you mentioned, one of the dynamics, I guess, you explore is how Molly's husband, so both she and her husband were Republicans, and at the time, not too too different from now, you're, you're getting a job, I think it was called, like, patron yes right you're getting like jobs in the government mm-hmm. under the when the party as in control is your party right yes. so they're republicans he's um appointed as one of the first municipal judges in washington dc african-american ones right? yes so so he's in office while she's advocating on the outside and you explore the dynamic where there's kind of some tension because i think it's booker t washington who's kind of like doling out patronage um, at right. that time and she's more radical than he is. And can you talk a little about that? Because that was really, that was another juicy point for me. I'm like, ooh, like yeah, I'm rubbing my say, hands that together. Was, that was what I, I sort of alluded to it, but not um, too much. Is like, that was the, the progressive sort of Republican Teddy Roosevelt type progressive meant to fight against just that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't really have a bureaucracy. We had like, if, the, if your person was in charge of the politics of a city, you got the sanitation jobs and this job and that job and that job. And then you could also like get a little on the side. Yeah, you know, for what you did, and and so the progressive idea was to sort of stop that, but that was that but was a rampant. Booker let, T's like yeah. charge, yeah, let, right? so, let me point out that patronage really helped uh, African Americans a lot after the Civil War because it was really the only way they got any government jobs, which was considered to be a middle class or even elite job because when we talk about the black elite in Washington, D.C. and places like that, we're not talking necessarily about people who have tons of money, but what they have is a stable income. And almost all of that, you think you could be a a postal carrier and be in part, part of the black elite. And so I think we have to realize that that patronage was incredibly important for them because it was the only way really that they could access work that other people could get in other ways, Mm. you know, if you were white. And so, um, some of those, uh, clean government (laughs) types of proposals actually had the negative benefit, the side effect of, closing out things. So, for example, when Oscar de Priest is coming up in Chicago politics, he's, you know, considered one of those corrupt uh, Republican politicians in Chicago, just like how they would say everybody in the Chicago machine was corrupt. But what he was doing is, I mean, his records are incredible. It's letter after letter after letter from African-Americans of all kinds, um, from really low education to high education, you know, everybody in between saying, please help me find a job, right? And they wanted to work. And they were just, um, there were so few opportunities to work. So patronage was huge. And that's why when, uh, when you know, Terrell is uh, coming on the train to Dover to give a talk, she's a paid operative of the Republican National Committee. And that's a huge big deal for women, right? Black women, white women, if they can get hired to run campaigns, that's a job. And she could make enough to live uh, or to kind of pad her income during uh, from one campaign to the next. And so in the 20s and 30s, she was a paid uh, campaigner 
for the Republican Party. Another reason why she wasn't going to switch parties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Because and this, this was been another method. I had she, a long, she yeah. worked within political parties. Exactly. As she well. worked within yeah. parties as well as outside of them. Yeah, so the, she was very flexible and pragmatic. So yeah. she was a radical and a pragmatist. And I don't know how we're <laughs> going to put that together, but it's, it's a true thing. It's a dialogue. <laughs> exactly. It's all there. But yeah, I mean, it's the mirror image of that. I had a long conversation with the historian Richard White when we talked about his book. Uh, on, on Reconstruction in the Gilded Age. Um, the Tammany Hall this is the same way, the, the mirror image. It's the Democratic machine in big cities that are doing that for um, Eastern Europeans, that are doing it for the Irish. This is why all the Irish were police uh, in New York when it started. Like, this this was the way that... This, this was Upward one of mobility. the options that immigrants had to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. like if, if, if we can, if we... There's a lot of us. It's sort of like a democracy in a sense. And, and if we can get our... You know, our people in here, we can get some jobs. Right. So it was a, it was a thing. Yeah, it yeah. was it was. A, but what's, it was a what's really thing. interesting about it in this situation is she's on the outside kind of like pushing for more progress. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and we Booker got, T. Washington we got, we got is derailed like. derailed from the Berkel, Booker T. Right. Washington. Uh, I, I really, Booker I really T. Washington gets so everybody all fired right? Because, yeah, so people are very, right, we all have our opinions. Um, and people change, right? So, like, if you look at Booker T. in the beginning or you look at W.E.B. Du Bois in the beginning, it's different than if you look at them at the end. But. What's really interesting about this and what I kind of related to uh, in today's day is her husband's working for the government. And the idea at the time uh, or the perception was that Booker T. Washington called the shots. He understood the black community. He spoke for the black community. But she's part of like the founding members of the NAACP and they're pushing in a way that he doesn't condone that's exactly right so so she is in the constitution league which is a group that's fighting for black rights and she's uh in the beginning of the naacp and she's giving speeches in all all over but especially in new york and dc and uh booker t washington writes to her husband and says look i i in effect helped you get your job as a municipal court judge because I introduced you and talked about you to Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, got him to appoint you. Um, So you need to keep your wife from doing what she's doing. She's too much of a radical activist and we need to keep her silent. And uh, to his credit, he did not do that. And instead uh, he told his wife about this um, but they made a decision that she would just go ahead and continue. So she and Ida B. Wells were the uh, two founding black women members of the NAACP. And it was definitely a strain um, and and stressful, I think, for the Terrell couple to try to navigate through uh, her radicalism in the context of keeping Booker T. Washington happy. And so she did... Uh, try to maintain social relations with him. And she tried to kind of cultivate his, uh, even after that whole event, yes. you know, tried to cultivate his. That was his... so interesting. <laughs> Where, like she talks about, well, you, you talk about her, I think it's in her diary. She talks about how like she sent him a note, like yes, exactly. because she didn't want she couldn't go to dinner. He invited her to dinner or something and she couldn't make it. Um, and she wanted him to know she really wished she could have made it. Exactly. She wasn't blowing him off. She's an operator. <laughs> Oh, she and was. A, and a shout but out, it's so a shout out to now, a shout right? out to like, Birdo. Shout out to the guy. Because <laughs> not only did he have to do not, <laughs> yes. not only how, not, was his name was Robert. I mean, <laughs> I, right. I have a little bit of, but but not only that. I mean, uh, not, he was an accomplished person in his own right, and a, and a and a very um, 
supportive partner yes. in, in that. And also, you know, I, I think I alluded to it before, but they, they had uh, trouble having children, but they wanted to have children. They, they finally did, but it was, a, it was an extremely arduous, dangerous process to have a family, number one. Uh, so he dealt with that. And, of course, we, we don't mention it, but, you know, travel, when you, go, when you go off on tour to do, you know, a speaking tour at the turn of the century and you're on railroads and you're, you're gone for months at a time. Right. Or when she was fighting for accommodations for her daughters at Oberlin, she lived there mm-hmm. for months at a time. So, uh, you know, pour one out for my man. He, 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 had, he had it rough. <laughs> I don't know about that. But, well, he, okay. but he was definitely a really great he was ahead partner. Of his time. I would he, he, was, he was really enlightened and he did see, uh, I mean, for example, when she was learning um, all those foreign languages at Oberlin, her friend said, oh, you've got to back off on this because you're never going to find a husband because, right. you know, you're going to be too educated and no one's going to want to marry you. And they she don't just, say that anymore. Ah. I've, I've never heard that. Yeah, one. right. Exactly. <laughs> well, but on top of that, she was going to be getting or all women at, at Oberlin got a ladies degree. And it, it was basically the idea was almost like an AA a two year degree. And she said, no, I want the gentleman's degree. And so she asked her father if he would be willing to pay for her to take a four-year course and she she applied and was uh, decided to do the four-year course and um, said well if I can't get married I can't get married and then when she went to teach Greek and uh, Latin at um, this called the M Street Colored High School in Washington DC he was the head of the department and he had just come from Harvard University where he was a Harvard grad and the first black man to be um, an honors student. And so in that context, he was not threatened by her and was excited about how educated and talented she was. And so he did always try to promote her uh, ability to be an activist, but he started really pushing that when she, as a black woman, was experiencing all of the different kinds of problems that black women have had with reproduction. And this is a historical and current problem with higher rates of infant mortality, higher rates of miscarriage, all kinds of terrible situations with stillbirths. And they experienced all of that, unfortunately, in the first um, six or seven years of their marriage. And it yeah, was heartbreaking. Terrell didn't, heartbreaking. almost didn't survive one. That's right. Yeah. She almost died. And so I think he saw her activism as a way for her to recover from her grief and to keep having a focus and a purpose. And he was right about that. And she, and she appreciated that he... Um, encouraged her in that way because it did allow her uh, to kind of move through the pain of all of those situations. So she had to go to give birth in segregated hospitals and she was um, traumatized in her first pregnancy when she had a miscarriage. You know, she really believed that she had the late term miscarriage because she found out that her friend um, Thomas Moss and his associates had been lynched in Memphis, Tennessee. This was the 1892 lynching that actually also motivated the anti-lynching career of Ida B. Wells, who uh, Terrell knew, but also who was good friends with Tom Moss as well in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And so you have all these black women facing real trauma at that time and trying to find a way to channel that into something other than trauma, but into activism for all women. So one of the things that also I think is confusing about her is that Mary Church Terrell 
if people know about her, they think of her as this elite woman who was removed from the masses of other black women. And part of that is because she was the first president of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. And um, their motto, which she came up with, was lifting as we climb. And it's been critiqued as a kind of respectability politics. But as you talked about, respectability politics is also about a way to protect yourself in a country that denigrates you. And um, in fact, her experience as this very elite woman is exactly what um, poorer black women were experiencing. And so what is the first thing she tries to do as president of this National Association of Colored Women's Clubs? She tries to create uh, daycares, nurseries, uh, nursery schools, kindergartens, anything she can do to help black women as mothers survive and have their children thrive. And she tries to create nursing programs so that black women can become nurses because she knows that if black women are caring for each other, right. their chances of survival are higher. And now there are lots of studies that have been done that prove that this is true. If black women are and black people in general are cared for by somebody who's not white, they're going to do much better and their chances of being listened to and taken seriously are higher. So she was somebody who's very complicated, but I think she's been seen in a very uh, one-dimensional way, and that's not at all who she is. So interesting, because that was the conversation we were having when I first got into the book, the first 50 pages, the first 100 pages, because I was doing other research, too. Like, I went down a rabbit hole about <laughs> a novel a novel that uh, Berto gave her in Europe oh. before he was born. Uh, uh, Robert Ellesmere was the name yeah. that I read about that. Now, I, yeah, so I was in... But my, my initial sort of feeling as I started was, is this a... Um, is this like a talented tenth privilege? Like, obviously, you cannot diminish the the other issues, but is this an elitist sort of enterprise? And that's why I was getting all wound up about like, why isn't she? And I'm like, about keep reading, fucking, Rob. Keep why reading. Isn't she talking about the unions, and I'm banging. My, <laughs> keep but reading. yeah, it was. A, but really, but but you said it so well. I think we'll maybe kind of leave it there, not necessarily, but yeah. So it's it's a. a, a a story. It's not a one-dimensional story at all. At at, at all. Um, do you want to ask one more question? Because I I have one question I want to close yeah. with. But you you can ask. Um, one more well, I mean, I would just say one of the other things. I don't want to give too much of the book away because I think the, the listeners should read it. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. By the it book. got me through COVID. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the interesting things is. Um, she in her 60s and 70s is looking for a job so like to think of her as an elite person right as i kept reading i'm realizing okay how precarious the so-called elite um, status of a black person was at that time her husband passes away her dad's properties are in disrepair the depression hits right there's all these issues so she's looking for a job constantly and you talked a little bit earlier about how she experienced racism in those instances but she also was was experiencing you know not quite poverty but close and she was you know in her old age still looking to work and still feeling she could contribute um which was just a really interesting dynamic but one of the things that i think would be cool for us to talk about a little bit is more pointedly the lessons that we can learn from her life um because i feel like i learned that um i don't know if i would say i learned it but it, it underscored the importance of working across difference, working in organizations where maybe you don't agree with everyone, um, not necessarily caring about perceptions of the groups that you're involved in, um, 
using different methods. So like the fact that she was working within the Republican Party and campaigning for her candidates, um, but also at one point protest votes. Right. And I'm like, I, I think I wrote in the margins like protest voting isn't new. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So she she had this really dynamic um multifaceted identity which really resonated with me and i feel like would resonate with a lot of the listeners but i don't know i'm just interested in like what else you guys took from um her life and what what we can say as like i guess as leftists or as the progressives that we can do moving forward yeah go ahead i was yeah. just going to mention that you mentioned it before but the thing that hit me and then we'll let you kind of close it is the unceasing part number one mm -hmm. because from the beginning to the end as you said, some of it was driven by necessity and having to work, but she w wanted to work. I mean, it's very clear by her own, you know, her, her own diaries and her own thoughts and her own words that she wanted to do this work. And also, you know, we don't, I don't think we see a lot of, now again, the, the context is different, but in that context, we don't see a lot of people arguing about a balanced budget, but then also saying the communists have a point. Like you really have to, you really have to be thinking about complicated issues in your head to be able to realize, to be able to think about those two things. They're very complicated, and so that I took that out of it too, which is, is a, a very deep thinking person who's putting that into practice, basically her whole life. Yeah, I mean, I think you are both raising some really interesting issues about what she can teach us, and for me, it is that. 60 plus years of being an activist um, might help us think about what does it mean to to be in a black freedom struggle? What does it mean to protest? And is it really about a summer of rebellion in 2020? And then if it doesn't all change overnight, do we give up? Or do we say, all right, what else can we do? And how do we also move forward? So I'm what I sometimes wonder about is whether you know, young people will get discouraged if they think, oh, it didn't work. You know, like I went out, I marched and it, it didn't change anything yet. And I would say um, her life story shows the need for persistence mm. and um, flexibility. And it is true that um, even when she experienced racism within a white dominated space like an organization she continued to be a member of that organization because she wanted to have her voice there to act as a corrective and she would stand up and say wait a minute you forgot to talk about black women in this context or you forgot about you know black yes. voting rights or whatever it is and so even when she was insulted and even when she felt um hurt she would go and and do that um but then she would literally go from a church group meeting to a communist meeting to a union meeting to an NAACP uh, meeting all in a day. So she was going to multiple different kinds of groups and really thinking about um, not not just doing it in one way. So that's where she's so interesting is that she is willing to talk to all kinds of people and talk across difference because she doesn't think it's going to help, especially since she sees she's in a white dominated country and she's not in the majority and she needs to be able to find ways to continue having communication and dialogue across difference because otherwise they're not going to be able to succeed if they don't find some allies and get some help, right? So part of it is about that. Um, and then 
she is working across different kinds of class uh, groups. So she's working with black elite black club women and she's working with women in prison and she goes into the prisons and meets with women who are sharecroppers. You know, so she's not elite. And I think if we can all model that kind of openness and flexibility and determination and a kind of fearlessness that says, I deserve to have a right at the table. I deserve to be here. And, you know, she would have loved the fact that you are a representative in the state of Delaware and that you have a seat at the table. She would have liked to be a um, senator, a U.S. senator. And she never felt that as a black woman, she had that option in the time that she was living. So she campaigned for actually white women uh, Ruth McCormick was running for Senate and she said, I'll campaign for her. And she was thrilled when she won the primary because it felt like, wow, this is going to be a change for women. Right. So she saw broadly how you need to create these alliances and support uh, other women in your attempt to get uh, that kind of power for yourself. You need to bring others along. And I think those are some of the lessons that we can learn from her. Well, we we had a an event, small private event, a couple of weeks ago uh, for another project we're doing. And the theme of it was um, to really spotlight Delaware women. Mm. Um, Medina was supposed to come, but she went disc- <laughs> she went disco dancing. I'm never going to live it down. She literally, she was all booked to do it. And then he disco, was like, how's this sound? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And then he told me the date, like maybe a week later. And I'm like, I have tickets to see Dua Lipa at Wells Fargo. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but in, in any event, it was, it was, it was, uh, I, Many great Never speakers, uh, Marie Pinckney and Tizzy and everything. And, and, and we closed the night with, with me talking to my friend Carrie Harris. Carrie F. Harris is the photo of her over there. Um, we've done a lot of um, actions together. And I took a lot of inspiration from her mom, actually, who was an activist. And her mom passed away uh, late last year. And I got her to talk a little bit about her mom, how inspirational she was to me. She had done some freedom rides in the South. Her and her husband uh, brought... Um, inner city youth to um, to a camp that they ran, and so many people talked about that at her funeral. It was so moving. Um, and I also think like moms don't get a lot of like props. And uh, in your acknowledgments, the first several paragraphs were a story about your mom yeah. inspiring you. And I thought maybe you could you could close with that and and give oh. your mom a, you know the 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 inspiration and the memory a shout out because it was really cool. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. Yes, my mother, Joanne Parker, has passed away a couple of years ago, but she was my inspiration. She was somebody who uh, grew up in the North but went to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte to teach or uh, Greensboro during the um, civil rights movement and ended up working with uh, the first groups really of black and Jewish students to be accepted at what was then a, a women's college. And um, they ended up uh, marching a year after the sit-ins in Greensboro, the Woolworths, which was downtown, but this was at the kind of local college main street, and they uh, fought to desegregate. And um, she ended up having a lot of hostility from her Southern white colleagues, the faculty who wrote and lover and all kinds of other lovely things on her um, faculty housing door. And um, it, I think, 
kind of radicalized her. And so when she uh, moved on in life, she continued to be a civil rights advocate and also um, a feminist and ran a women's studies program in a high school and invited people like um, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Shirley Chisholm, Bella Obzug, Gloria Steinem, they all came to speak at her high school. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, so she was really incredible. And um, she was an inspiration to me for sure. Well, um, that, was, that was so great. The, the book is Unceasing Militant. It's the life of Mary Church Terrell. Um, the author is here with us, uh, Professor Allison Parker. Thank you so much for, for coming in and doing this. It's oh, awesome. Thank you. It was a wonderful conversation. I appreciated talking with you both. Well, folks, you've uh, we've come to the end of another uh, absolute incredible episode. We have to give it um, to uh, Medina for helping us uh, produce it. Now, are you guys are you guys back in session? I mean, are, are the are the long, what do you work like th- two months a year down there in Dover? What the hell's going on? <laughs> I mean, on when down you count there? them up, basically. Um, yeah. So, not sure when the episode comes out, but next maybe, week maybe we'll yeah, maybe you've gone to work yeah. two days. Maybe we'll be back out by the time this goes out. I don't know, <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll be back and. Hopefully there'll be some exciting things happening in um, Dover in Legislative Hall. I'm sure there will be. Carl, thank you. Nurse Susan, thank you for sitting in. Everyone, as always, left his best. <laughs>